Thank you, Robbie. Now what I'd also ask you to do, if um, you might want to take out the insert that's in your Bible, it'll have the scripture passage that the, the sermon will be based on. Particularly what, I, what I'm doing is, is, you know, if you know my methodology, I typically will have read through the sermon text as I'm preaching, so I, I'll assign a different scripture reading that's going to have an impact, it's going to be related to it, and that's what um, our elder there was reading from, from chapter 8. Well, there are a few things, I suppose, that are more nerve-wracking than to be put on legal trial, and especially when the, the verdict may end up in, in death. Well, that's where Jesus now stands. He's in that position. And John will, as is typical of him, he's going to present a unique perspective on the trial, or actually rather trials that Jesus is going through. He's going to omit what the other writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, deem really important to put in there. And then he's going to add things that never occurred to them to put in there. Now, he's a skillful writer. And so both the omissions and the additions, they're going to serve his purpose. He's got something in mind. So let's see what he does in our passage. We're going to be returning to Jesus. He has come to uh, Annas. And this can be confusing because John refers to him as the high priest. And yet, in just two or three verses later, he's going to refer to Caiaphas as the high priest. And so will the real high priest, we want to say, will the real high priest stand up? Well, it depends on who you're going to ask who's, about who's going to actually be the real one. The Romans will tell you that Caiaphas is the high priest because the Romans are the ones who appoint him to be that high priest. And apparently they would, I don't know if it was on a yearly basis or whatever, but they would periodically appoint the high priest on some kind of basis. Now, if you ask the Jews, they would say, well, it's Annas. He's the high priest. A high priest is a high priest for life. And uh, so if he's still alive, he's still that high priest. Now, it so happens, you know, that Annas is a pretty shrewd politician as well as being a priest. It just so happened that the next five high priests just happened to be his sons. Or his, in this case, his son-in-law. You see how the system works. Well, let's begin reading here. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Uh, Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. And John is the only writer here who records this episode before Annas. And he's not going to 
give a report of the actual trial before the Jewish High Council, the the Sanhedrin, in which Caiaphas, as high priest, uh, would have moderated. And why he doesn't, we don't know why he doesn't, but for whatever the reason, what's given into our minds by John here is this dismissive attitude of what would have been considered the true Jewish high priest. It's just this dismissiveness of Jesus. Now, no doubt, Annas wanted to size up Jesus for himself, and he gets nowhere. Because what Jesus actually is doing when he's when he seems to be impertinent here, about saying, well, why are you asking me? He's just standing upon his civil rights for a fair trial. He's just saying, this is not the rules. You're not following the right rules. Now, an official Jewish trial will be given by Caiaphas, but that one's not going to be fair either. Now, John, his interest, though, seems he wants to get on over to Pilate. That's where his interest lies. So let's go to verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, This man were not doing evil. We would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, Is it not lawful for us to put, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death? This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Now, first of all, clearly much, a lot of dialogue has been omitted in this little account. First of all, just between the Jewish officials and Pilate. We know from the other Gospels that they actually did have accusations to make against Jesus. The primary one, primarily, they were claiming that he had claimed to be a king. So John omits that, but now he adds other details that are missing in the other writers. So, for example, it's John alone who makes the point that the leaders did not enter into Pilate's headquarters. And the reason being is that they did not want to be ceremonially defiled and then be, dis, then be excluded from participating in the Passover happening that very evening. Now, you see then, in a moment, he's showing us an irony here. In their wickedness to send an innocent man to death, they are very selfish, uh, very conscious about keeping themselves ceremonially pure to celebrate the Passover. And then to, to add to the tra- travesty there, they present Jesus as what? They said, hey, he's an evildoer. He's committed evil. He's a criminal. Now, that word for evil that they're using in here is the same word that Jesus used in verse 23 when Jesus says, bear witness about the wrong. And the whole point of that is that no one could bring any true accusations against him. There was nothing wrong that he had done. And here they are having the gall to present this man, this innocent man, as an evildoer. Again, making sure that they do not defile themselves. And then there's a reminder about the Passover. So that very day, 
Jewish families are bringing their Passover lambs to the temple to be slain. Well, on that same day, these Jewish leaders are bringing the true Passover lamb to be slain. Do you see his skill there? He, he, he's got this ability, you know, by choosing what he's going to put in, what he's going to take out and on there, to, to just give us these, these insights and ironies that are constantly going on. So now he's going to take us to the meat of the passage. This is what he really wants us to, to draw our attention to, beginning in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? So here's the issue that is at hand. Is Jesus promoting himself as the king of the Jews in challenge to Caesar? That's the charge that the leaders, the Jewish leaders, had brought to Pilate. It's the only charge worthy to be judged by a Roman procurator. It's the only charge that's going to provide uh, the death penalty. So that's what is at stake here in this exchange between Jesus and Pilate. And what Jesus is doing when he asks that question, do you say this of your own accord or others saying about me? He's clarifying the basis on which Pilate's asking his question. Is it from his own viewpoint, from a political standpoint, or is it from the religious standpoint? And Pilate's response there, am I a Jew, is a response that this is strictly political. So Jesus, in verse 36, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. So again, to put Jesus' answer in context, he's saying, he's explaining to Pilate that his kingship has nothing to do with the earthly rule of Rome. Okay. It's religious. It's not standing in defiance of Caesar. Okay, but Pilate wants a little bit more clarification. He picks up on that word kingdom. So in verse 37, then Pilate said to him, so you are a king? Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now, of course, we are still in this trial of Jesus. But you can see now here where John is moving us. He's moving us from the surface trial to the greater trial that's taking place. Because at this moment, it's not Jesus on trial. It's Pilate. Jesus is offering. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. He's offering to Pilate right then and there the opportunity. To hear him, to make that decision for him, to know him, to to know him as the bearer of truth. And Pilate fails the test. What is truth? And 
make it clear that he has no interest in the matter, he walks away. Well, what are the lessons that I that we that John would have us learn? Well, I, I think clearly he's got two concepts he wants in our mind. One is about kingdom, and the other about truth. You know, John refers to, actually uses that term kingdom less than any of the other writers by far. Only four times will you find the word in the Gospel of John. It's here, two times, and then back in chapter 3 it's used twice, when uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus. Let me take you back to that. It's John 3, and I'm going to read verses 3 to 6. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Jesus is making the, was making the same point to Nicodemus as he has been making to Pilate, that the kingdom that he brings goes beyond an earthly kingdom. Both of them, Pilate, even Nicodemus, had an earthly kingdom in mind. Nicodemus, who was a Jewish Pharisee, was looking, as all other Israelites were looking, for the earthly kingdom of God, that the Messiah would come and restore, in a sense would resurrect for Israel. And Jesus is teaching that his kingdom entails a spiritual rebirth. It is therefore, he's trying to get into our minds, a kingdom that transcends all earthly kingdoms all earthly governments and and nations. It is a kingdom, it's a kingdom that can exist in democracies, it can exist under dictatorships, under totalitarian governments, it can uh, exist anywhere upon this earth. It is a kingdom that infiltrates, for example, Muslim countries and Hindu countries and secular countries. It is a, a kingdom that exists wherever the Holy Spirit is at work. And that Spirit then is turning the hearts of stone into hearts of flesh and giving new birth that is dedicated uh, to living for Christ and for a spiritual kingdom. It is a kingdom that arrived with the coming of Jesus. Do you, you know what Jesus' first words when he, when he came and began his ministry? Repent. For the kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is near in his person. And it's a kingdom, though, that will be completed. It will be consummated when he returns again. It's this kingdom that matters to Jesus. All of his teachings, all of his parables had to do with living, entering into that kingdom, and then living in that kingdom. It is this kingdom that takes precedence over all earthly allegiances for his disciples. Now, it's a complicated subject, and the details of how anyone lives in any given society, how 
under any given government. That's going to vary. The details somehow are going to be difficult to discern. But we're always to keep before us this principle of that we are living in and under Jesus' kingdom, under his headship. That's the controlling guide, the controlling motivation for his followers. We were doing the, um, uh, the Lord's Prayer. What did we pray? For thine is the kingdom. That's what we're to be thinking about every day. How would King Jesus have me live this day? What values would he have me hold? How may I? Where do I fit in with my particular government and my particular society's rules and customs? Where must I draw the line and stand with the teachings of my king over against some of those customs and values? Always, everywhere, in every circumstance, we are to remind ourselves that we are the citizens of Jesus' kingdom. And we have to always be thinking, always, what reflects his kingdom? What honors our kingdom? We are never, ever at liberty to just say and do what we want to do because we got upset or whatever the reason. We are always witnesses for our Lord. Now, you might be a student in a secular school. You might be an employee. You might be a business owner. You might be retired. Whatever the case, every day you have got to be inquiring of the Lord, how would you have me honor your name? How am I to do your will this day? It's it's the Lord's Prayer. So kingdom, being kingdom-minded followers of Christ is what we are to be. And what can we learn here about truth? What's the message there? But back again there, where Jesus responds to Pilate's question about, you are a king. And what does he say? For this purpose I was born. And for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Now, unlike kingdom, John, by far, uh, uses that term truth or, or true or truly. You put all the other gospel writers together and he far outstrips them. It appears 55 times in his gospel. Now, which then presents a challenge going through every time and trying to figure out exactly what's being said. But even if you do, you try to figure out all the nuances and all the different ways that we're to understand his truth. It boils down to this, and particularly in this passage, that true, absolute truth is real. And Jesus delivers that truth. His teachings are true. The work of redemption that he has come to do, it's true redemption. The kingdom that he establishes is a true kingdom. Indeed, it is the only true kingdom. You know, I, I had been wrestling, when, you know, coming to this part and preparing the sermon about where to go with this? This is a large topic. And then just try to give all the examples, you know, particularly today, because truth claims of, of Christianity are, are under vigorous attack. What we claim to be true is taught in Scripture. That's attacked. 
And in our own time, we not only have people questioning the truth of Scripture, they just question the concept of truth itself. You can't know it. It doesn't matter whether we're talking about religion, whether we're trying to, to talk about history, whether we're even talking about science. Truth is considered as, as relative. Indeed, the only absolute truth claim of today is that there is no such thing as absolute truth. At best, maybe in science, we can have an understanding of what best fits the data at any given time. Now, I'm not saying anything new to, to us older folks here. Relativism, this idea about relative truth, it grew up with us. Okay. But to those of you who are in the younger generation, understand you're going to bear the brunt of these attacks. You're going to be ridiculed. You're going to be confronted. You're going to have the challenge of your reputation of your career being threatened. Because the oddity of today is that as the attacks against truth claims as they rise, so does the intolerance of differing with any of the prevailing views of our culture. You know, it's just a hard thing to figure out. Nobody can have the corner on truth, but if you differ with me, I'm going to make sure that you are shut up. That's where our society is heading today, and it's you younger folks are going to have to really bear that. You're going to be regarded. You're not going to just be regarded as, you know, just some naive person. You're going to be regarded as dangerous because you hold to the truth of Scripture. So all the more, then, you need to be doing your homework now. You need to study the truth claims of Jesus and of the the Christian faith. You can no longer just say, well, this is what I grew up with. This is what I taught. you got to start studying it. You need to read works that rationally defend your faith. You, you should be now. You should know about. You should read. You should listen to Christian scholar because here is what's going to happen, particularly once you get on to college. Critics are going to take advantage of what you do not know. And if you take religion classes, for example, in college, and even my generation, if we happen to take a religion course in a secular school, you're going to find out professors are going to attack your beliefs, and they're going to do it in such a way as to just completely ignore that there are arguments of conservative scholars. It's as if they just don't exist. If you read works and you listen to, uh, to those who just you know, cut down the Christian faith, they're going to say things like, I used to believe that way too when I was in Sunday school, but then when I went on to college or whatever and wised up, you know, I couldn't believe those things anymore. As though there has not been scholarly research for centuries that uphold the Christian faith. And so you've got to know that and be preparing yourself. And understand this, it is good to study what you believe, to even raise doubts in your own mind and then tackle those doubts. Because if Jesus bears witness to the truth, if he claims to be the truth itself, then by all means we need to be pursuing truth. 
and not be afraid to where it's going to take us because it is going to take us to our Lord. But you still must do the work. You have to use your mind. You don't fall back on the idea that, well, believing is just a matter, it's just a leap of faith. Even if it's contrary to the evidence, search for it. Again, Jesus is not afraid of it. God is not afraid of what you will find. For all truth, all true efforts to find truth are going to lead you to Jesus and his claims. Now, here's the other way that I would apply the passage, and this is how I apply the passage as a pastor. Here's what I would have you understand about Jesus' remarks. Whether you are young or old, you know, there are times that your faith will be shaken. It doesn't, you don't have to be attacked, but there will be things that happen in your life, that happen around you, they shake you. And you're going to have your Peter moments when, you know, you had your expectations of how things should be and it's all pulled out from under you. You were comfortable, you were secure in your faith, and then, and then just something happens. It just throws your life in a turmoil. What then? Well, then hold on to what you have known to be true, that Jesus is real. As we had been confessing in our very confession of faith this morning. He's got you. He's got you in his hands. Jesus is real. He has won your redemption. He's done it. And that Jesus is still with you now as he promised. You know, I, I've, I've been a pastor for nearly 40 years now. Too many times... Too many times people have come to me for counsel, and I have not known what to say to them. I mean, they would, they would come up with things that are just so tragic, and they're in just such a bind, and I can't see a way out for them. And so one time, I mean, just, just to give me time to, to think, I, I asked a question, and I'll, I'll vary it one of two ways. I will say, you know, I haven't really gotten to know you that well. Share with me your testimony. Or I might say, wow, (laughs) considering all that's happened to you, how is it you still have faith? Because that's why they come to me. Not because they lost their faith, but they're struggling with it. And they'll pause. they'll, They'll think. And then inevitably, they will begin to share beautiful stories. Might be of how they came to know Jesus. Or it might be, they'll say, well, how could I ever leave him? What he's done for me. And they just share these beautiful truths of the Christian faith. And that's what they have. They have truth. And it's a truth that shines through the darkness of their troubles. It's a truth that holds them fast in the midst of turmoil. It's a truth that is centered in Jesus. And I tell you, they'll leave. And I'll just think, oh, you're such a wise counselor. And I haven't told them anything. They've just been listening to themselves, reminding themselves of what they have and who they've got. Remember your Lord Jesus. It's your Lord Jesus Christ who stood calm in the midst of his trials because he knew the truth. 
you too may know and rest on that truth that he bore witness to. And you too can attest what Jesus said about you. Like in John 8.32, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. We give you thanks, our Lord, for the truth. The truth that you were born for, that you came to bear witness to, of, of you yourself. That you are the Son of God, that you have won our salvation that can never be lost, that you are with us even now, that you will again return. May we hold on to that, and we give you praise and thanks. In Christ's name, amen.